Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello and welcome to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm Mitch Bryan. John Engel is once again off on a secret mission. We can't discuss it, but we're going to have a great time today because we're looking at minutes 84 through 91, which begin with Bond inspecting Grant's matching Q branch briefcase and end with Bond held at gunpoint by Grant, who informs him of a phony blackmail plot involving a reel of film. In between, Grant orders red wine with fish and then drugs Tanya before getting the drop on Bond in his compartment, who realizes that Spectre is behind the plot. And today we are joined by the one, the only Mr. Mark Edlitz, author of How to Be a Superhero, but more germane to our discussion, The Lost Adventures of James Bond and The Many Lives of James Bond, both of which are fascinating books that examine all of the far-flung satellites orbiting around the sun, which is... James Bond. Welcome, Mark. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. I'm really, really happy to to, to join you in, in your podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, I, your book is so fascinating um, for a number of reasons, because you talk to so many different people associated with James Bond. But like as a writer, I admit, I really, really enjoy all of the stuff dealing with not only Richard Maybaum and his essays that he wrote concerning Bond, but all of these James Bond movies that we haven't ever seen, and yet bits and pieces of them seem to crop up in some of the movies that we have seen. Can you talk a little bit about uh, there? There was an origin story, right? Before that, that was that was thought about before the beginning of Casino Royale, right? Right. So, as everyone who's listening to this podcast knows, uh, Timothy Dalton played James Bond twice in Living Daylights and License to Kill. And when it came time to make a third Dalton film, there were a lot of studio issues that prevented him from going on and making that third film. Those issues were unrelated to the disappointing box office returns of License to Kill. Uh, so there was an expectation that Dalton was going to make more movies. And during the process, they had different approaches to what that third film could have been. Uh, one story was a origin story, which explains how uh, Bond became 007, and it pairs him with a senior agent, uh, and Bond learns the ropes, and he learns how to talk his way out of situations, and uh, he falls in love, and he learns not to fall in love on missions, and uh, by the story's end, he you know, gets assigned to go to Jamaica to investigate something about Dr. No. Uh, so it would have really taken place right before uh, Dr. No, be, before the first Bond film, Sean Con the first Sean Connery yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's even an ancestral home in Scotland. Yes. That sort of turns up in Skyfall. Yes, yeah. And uh, you, I love the, the first 
you know, third or quarter of the of that James Bond origin story because it's it's just Bond and he's in his element and he's not yet on missions and he you know he he goes to the ancestral home he sees his his you know his grandfather who puts him in touch with somebody who turns out to be M and you see Aunt Charmaine um, uh, so it's really just lovely you know it's lovely character stuff uh, yeah so. Yeah. And and then you also write about the what would then have maybe been the third Timothy Dalton film, which was this kind of it's not really James Bond meets the Terminator, but it has to do with robotics and it has to do with um, I mean, it, w- it was moving it towards more of a science fiction kind of story, which should, that's not unheard of in the Bond universe. That's for sure. Right. And so for his third there for his for Dalton's third film. There could have been two different versions of the story that you're describing. Uh, uh, and in the first version, it was written by, uh, co-written by Michael G. Wilson, of course, and Alphonse Ruggiero, who did work on Miami Vice, and that's the credit most people give when they're talking about his work. But it was really his work on Wise Guy that attracted the attracted Eon to him. Also that he was, they liked that he was a TV writer and could work fast. Uh, and that was something that they were hoping uh, would enable them to get to production quickly. But um, he, the, the two of them, Alfonso Guerrero and uh, Michael G. Wilson cooked up what, what I call sort of a stylish techno thriller. Uh, and where there is a character who is, who doesn't speak throughout it who is later revealed to have some sort of enhanced uh, robotic gadgetry inside her. We can say bionic now. We can say bionic, Bionic, yes. yes. Bionic is allowed now in the wake of of No Time to Die. I think bionic is a good descriptor, better than Terminator, because when when I think of bionic, I think of Steve Austin and uh, Jamie Summers, who were Mm -hmm. humans who just had, you know, who were enhanced. And they weren't, Full Terminators like right, um, right. like Arnold, but um, and the, the other thing about that 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 character uh, Nan Nan uh, is that she would have just been one element of the of the whole story. It's right. it's such an outrageous concept um, that that's sort of where the focus goes. But but it, it, they had a really interesting story, and they were really going to make a gritty. Back to basics, in my opinion, uh, third Dalton film. The whole techno thriller thing would be what would be underpinning almost all of the Pierce Brosnan Bond films. So Bond was headed in the direction of the techno thriller one way or the other, probably. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think they were right. I think they might have been a little bit too ahead of their time in terms of, 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 of this. It was probably something that would have been more effective a year or two later. Uh, and then they took this, then they took the bear, the skeleton of that idea. And then the, the, the writers who wrote twins, uh, took that skeleton of an idea and took it in a different direction. And then they turned that into a action comedy as opposed to, you know, what we're we're calling a techno thriller. And in the, and it was an action comedy. And it was broader. It was sort of more Roger, more Era Bond. Uh, in this iteration, Bond is 
he's doubting himself. He's doubting whether he still has his mojo. Uh, and his emotional arc throughout the film is starting with uh, not having confidence in himself until the end, regaining his confidence in himself. And so it would have been interesting to see Bond go through an emotional journey, but it, it was an action comedy, and they had a Dalton hiding out in a rodeo, and so he disguises himself by dressing up in a, as a you know as a rodeo cowboy. He's got a cowboy hat, and it would have actually been a, a funny image. Yeah, uh, and uh, so there, there were there were some some fun things in there. It must have just been fun to, for you as a as a writer to just be able to just kind of dive into this stuff and, yeah, and, I, and imagine. Yeah, I've been obsessed with Dalton's third film uh, for many, many, many years uh, since we since we were hoping for a, a third Dalton film, and I always wondered what that was going to be like. Was it going to be more like his first? Was his third film could be more like the Living Daylights, which was sort of a, which was a classic Bond film to me, you know, classic meaning traditional, or would it have been more like License to Kill, which was grittier and darker and more violent? Um, and so my book is an attempt to answer some of those questions about what 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 could have we gotten? Yeah. Uh, uh, there's one other thing I was going to ask you about in terms of your books, which is to uh, not to throw you a curve, but to go back to the, I think it's, I think this is in the previous book. There was just an anecdote about Sean Connery and the video game. Oh yeah, for sure. And can you just talk yeah, about sure. that? Yeah, sure. Cause I want to, cause it, it's, I want to talk a, about the, um, from when, when we talk about from Marshall love, I also want to talk a little bit about, uh, the few different adaptations of it. Uh, do you want to talk about that now? The few yeah, yeah, go okay. ahead. No, no, that's so, great. With, with from, we're here today uh, to talk about From Marshall of Love, the, the, the second Bond film. Uh, but it's been adapted, that story, From Marshall of Love, has been adapted several times. Obviously, the first time, the most significant, was in Ian Fleming's novel. So the film we're talking about is an adaptation, obviously, of that novel. And when we talk about the film, there's some interesting choices that they made in terms of adapting it. But the other adaptations are a radio drama with Toby Stevens as James Bond in uh, July 2012, uh, which is a pretty faithful adaptation within, within what you could do in 90 minutes uh, for the radio for BBC Four. And Mark Gaddis from, you know, he, he's known, he's known, you know, from Doctor Who and Sherlock. He he plays a part. He played um, uh, Kronstein, the, the chess master. Mm-hmm. And Julian Sands plays Q. Uh, and and so that what, what's good about that adaptation is that they're adapting the novel and not the film. So it's most, it's more structured like the novel uh, and it, than the film. Another adaptation uh, is it was the 1960 comic strip version, uh, illustrated by John McCluskey, uh, who who really created the face of Bond and is the face of Bond that many readers still today uh, think of when they're reading Fleming's novels. And it was written by Henry. Gamage, I'm going to, uh, Gamage, G-A-M-M-I-D-G-E, 
uh, and uh, you know, and that was told over several months in the Daily Express. But the one of the another interesting adaptation was the 2006 video game of From Russia with Love, that is notable because Sean Connery was invited back to play James Bond in an adaptation of the film. And what's notable about that is that he said yes. So it's a, the video game is filled with animated segments that can make up like a mini James Bond animated movie with Sean Connery reprising his role. And you could tell that it's, that he's a, that, that it's done at that time. Uh, so it, his voice is slightly different, but uh, it's so great to hear Connery do play James Bond once more, one more time. And it's also great for trivia. You know, when's the last time Sean Connery played James Bond? You know, you know, most people, if they're, they'll say never say never again. But I, I think that this sort of 2006, 2005 game uh, trumps it. Um, and anyway, so there's some great. So he, the producer of that was Glenn Schofield, whose name Glenn said, whenever Connery would call him Schofield, it sounded like Lowfield. <laughs> <laughs> and so he always got a, a little kick whenever Connery said Schofield. Um, but there's some wonderful recording uh, stories about uh, that recording session that uh, it, for my first book, Many Lives of James Bond. And one of the more touching ones is he, Connery did his, you know, his full day of recording at the studio. He goes through his six hours or, or so and uh, or, or, you know, whatever it took. Uh, and Glenn Schofield, the producer, gets a call later that day saying, I don't have it. There's a problem with the audio. I don't have it. And Glenn says, what do you mean you don't have it? And the, the, the engineer says, I don't have any of the audio for today's session. Uh, and so this is bad because they have a contract <laughs> with Sean Connery and you don't, uh, and it's a limited time that he has to do this entire part. And, uh, you know, they worked him, they worked him hard and, Glenn Schofield, the producer, is in a panic, and the engineer says, don't worry, I, I know Sean. Uh, let me give him a call. And Connery comes back and does it again the next day for free. That's just unbelievable. And I know Connery's had a complicated relationship with the character over the years, uh, but I, I, it's just a, such a sweet story, and it shows uh, Connery's professionalism, his kindness, and his loyalty, not just to the project, but uh, but also to this engineer who he's worked with uh, for many, many years. And he really sort of took care of things on his own and he didn't have to. And then the other sort of sweet story um, from that is uh, the producer asked Connery, you know, why are you coming back? Why are you doing this? I mean, Connery was paid well, but that that wasn't the only reason that he did it. He did it for his grandkids. He, he knew his grandkids were interested in video games, and he thought that uh, this would be sort of a gift to them, which is also super sweet. It's, it was so <laughs> sweet, especially at a time when he was in his career. I think he had gotten a kind of a, a, a rap for being only about the money and being, 
cranky about when he had to be there and not be there and all that kind of thing. So to just to see that generosity of spirit and professionalism yeah. is really it's a it's a great note to go out on. Yeah. As James Bond, you know, arguably a better note to go out on than Never Say Never Again. I love I, I, I take issue with that, with that good sir. I love I, 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 I'm one of those people who just love Never Say Never Again. I saw it in the movie theater. Uh, so that was my first on-screen Connery Bond. Prior to that, I'd only watched all the other films on, you know, the ABC uh, yeah, Sunday night movie. Sunday night movie, yeah. Uh, so yeah, to yeah. see Connery on the big screen playing Bond was, was an utter thrill for me. I think that that movie, for me, I just struggle with the score so much, and it just drives me crazy. I don't know if you've seen that thing on YouTube where they took yes. um, the John Barry uh, music and the for the opening, and it's like, oh, my God, this would have just been knock it out of the park. Yeah. It would have been great. Yeah, and Felix is great in it. Oh, and Klaus, Maria, Klaus Maria Brandauer is really good. Barbara Carrera. So yeah, there's, there's lots. Yeah, Barbara Carrera is amazing. There's lots to recommend. And they it, wrote sure. uh, the the on set writer. So Lorenzo Semple uh, wrote the the script, and then on set, uh, Dick Clement and Ian LaFrenese. I'm so. I, I, note to everyone: I am terrible with how to say things and pronouncing people's names. <laughs> so please uh, come, give me, forgive me a little bit. But anyway, they were, they were on set. Um, I actually interviewed them for, for one of the books. And they wrote all this wonderful on-set dialogue, including one of the best lines in any James Bond movie. You know, when Fatima Blush says, I got you a wet, yes, but my, and he says, yes, but my, my chinny is still dry. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's... <laughs> I love it. I love it. I also fill the cup, and he says, "From here." I think that's, pretty, <laughs> that's pretty good too. So no, there's a lot of really and good. And he's so stuff relaxed. In that movie. His performance. Mm-hmm. He's just so relaxed and comfortable playing Bond in that. It just, it's a treat. Way better than Diamonds Are Forever, I think. Yeah, I think his perform. I think his performance, his engagement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he w- seemed to want to be there even more than he wanted to be there for Diamonds Are Forever. And so, so th- this also brings up. Uh, there's, when people talk about Never Say Never Again or when they talk about Casino Royale 67, I think it is. Um, yeah. You know, they always say unofficial James Bond movie. And I think that's uh, not quite the right way to express it. These were official James Bond movies in that they were made legally mm-hmm. by the rights holder at the time. Uh, what what they are are non-eon Bond movies. And I'm not saying you have to like Never Say Never Again, although I suggest you do. And I'm not saying you have to like Casino Royale, the original, which is a little bit more, you know, that's, that's, it is what it is. But um, I don't think we should dismiss them simply by saying that they're unofficial, like, you know, like that they're fan films. You know, you could hate them, analyze them, break them apart, you know, but uh, let's at least give them the respect of that is my little soapbox soapbox thing. I totally agree. I got never say never <laughs> right behind me on that shelf. So, <laughs> well, so let's jump, uh, jump into these minutes. Although I guess I should ask one last thing. When did you first see from Russia with love or do you remember it? How it fit into your education of bond? I, I saw it on the, you know, that, that ABC Sunday night movie. Yeah. So it, in, 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 in chunks, you know, they the ABC Sunday Night Movies not only were their commercials, but they were they edited it 
They, 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 they did. They, I feel like also there might have been some pan and scan and to well, keep certainly with free. the scope lens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was a so not a great uh, way to present the film, but I, I didn't care. I, I mean, I saw all I saw most of my you know Bond movies up until whatever uh, Spy Who Loved Me and backwards were right. uh, on TV in the it all cut up to pieces, mm-hmm. uh, and I got to tell you, I didn't care. Um, that was the first, but my first exposure to them. And then I got them on VHS tape. You know, you know, they you buy it. at that time they were like a fortune. Some of them to yeah, to, they were you know, like eighty, ninety dollars just to get a film. You know, and now it's much better. Yeah, and laser discs too were so. Expensive oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I had laser discs, and that was yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Did you, so when you saw it, probably was out of order. It was probably so. It was out of order, and it, and. It's not a typical Bond movie. It's one of the, it's you know it's it's widely considered one of the best. I think Raymond Benson, noted Bond author and scholar, mm-hmm. and I think he calls it his favorite. Um, I might be wrong about that. A lot of people love it. Uh, it, it you know, it's one of those films where it sort of all comes together. It all works, but it's not. It's not the prototypical Bond film, and the structure of it is also different than the others you know there's usually the character you the audience often know as much as james bond so he's a you know he's a spy but you know he's he also he almost plays the role of a detective right so there's a mystery to be solved and we usually see the the it's you know we usually see the inciting incident that that kicks it off and we know some information and Bond has to go find out more. And so Bond and the viewer are in lockstep with what they know. This is sort of different in that early, early on, we just hear the villain scheme. This is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to trick uh, the, the British government and Bond. And they're going to fall for it. And so you're watching it in a different way. There is suspense and there is tension, but it's expressed in a different way where it's, you know, I guess it's sort of like, you know, Hitchcock's ticking bomb. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. where if you show the audience the ticking bomb under the table, they, they feel suspense about when and is it going to go off versus the, the, the bomb just explodes and it's surprise, surprise versus suspense. So, a lot of the scene is done. A lot of the scenes are, you know, will Bond find out? But you're not wondering the plot. You're not wondering what the villain is up to because they've told you. Yeah. And I understand that that was some of that was a post-production, uh, quote unquote, fix to a problem that they perceived that they had, which was, oh, this is not as clear as we think it is. We need to let the audience in on it earlier. Let's put the, you know, the explaining scene up at the top as opposed to, you know, a little bit in. Yeah. And then the other thing that's interesting about this structurally is Bond doesn't appear until 18 minutes in. I mean, you right. see him at the pre-title sequence, but it's not Bond. Right. You know, but he doesn't appear. You know, he's he's late to this movie, which is which is in keeping with sort of the novel. Yeah, uh, but it, it, it so it's very different. 
Yeah. It's weird how they are kind of figuring out this decision about how far ahead does the audience need to be not only with Bond, but just kind of with the whole world. Because I know there was an argument in Goldfinger where they didn't say everything that the Aston Martin did. And then somebody, somebody wisely said, no, 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 no. We're going to go back and we're going to reshoot a scene with Bond and Q. And we're going to lay out exactly what this car is capable of doing so that the audience is anticipating it and waiting for it. And they probably figured it out on this. Like, you know, you know these, min- these minutes in particular are all about Bond catching up and us being reminded of where we've been and what, you know, what we know that Red Grant doesn't know. Yeah, that's what makes that live and let die scene with Roger Moore on the rock surrounded by alligators so great is because you know, you've seen you've seen what the watch does. It, you know, it's magnetic. So you know that he's going to get out of it by turning it on and the boats come towards him. Problem solved. Uh, but that's what's so great about that is that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't yeah, work. That's right. Yeah. And that's definitely Guy Hamilton having really figured out having made some, you know, several Bond films now. I mean, he really kind of knew when to play that that game of make the audience think it's going to work and then it isn't, and then it'll work for something else. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. Well, let's, if we jump into these minutes, in fact, yeah. the very first shot seems to me to be a very quiet reminder about the catches on the briefcase because Bond turns them the right way, and if you're paying attention, you remember that, and if you don't, you'll get another reminder later on, but feels like that's kind of what they're up to. Yeah, that, that was my impression, too, is that... Uh, so, the, so about the catches, and he's trying to... He's trying to determine if Grant is... Or Nash, as Grant is going by at, right. at the moment, is legit. And so by flipping the switches and the, the way that Q described it at the, at, at, you know, earlier on, it's, it's one... It supports it supports that Bond shouldn't. You don't want your main character to look foolish, you know. Right. The, you don't want him to just make bonehead mistakes. You don't want to make you know the horror film mistakes of, you know, don't go back in the house. So right. you have to sell that that Bond is in the right by trusting this guy. Uh, you know, we, you know, we, we he did the uh, the um, the signal. What do you call it again? Right. The, the signal. Yeah. And so this yeah, is... The a passwords. Thank yeah. you, yeah. And so this is another clue that this is a legit guy. Yeah. And it works. It opens. Uh, I've always wondered. I've I've never heard whether those are Connery's hands or not. Like <laughs> I'm constantly hearing these stories about, you know, Terrence Young going, no, those are my hands there. But uh, to my knowledge, nobody has copped to those hands oh, being any, any hands other than Connery's. <laughs> <laughs> but it might be. You never know. They're doing a lot of second unit stuff. It also holds the the suitcase holds more than I would have guessed. It's got like his clothes in it. You know, yeah. I would have assumed he just threw in a, threw in some papers, but he, this guy's he's got his clothes, he's got his gun. Uh, it's just, it, it look. I'm not a gun guy, but it seems like the same kind of gun that that Connery has. Does I think, think so. It, yeah, I think it seem... it's a, I think it's a little Walther. Yeah. yeah. So it, it it all this reinforces Bond trusting Nash. Or at least we think Bond is trusting Nash. Well, well, we're we're still not a hundred percent sure because at least he's on he's on the he's on his guard. Yeah, you know, in the book, uh, she is very suspicious of Nash. Like even his name. Yeah, it, she it, says in Russian it means. What is it? She says it means like ours. I can't remember what the. Is that what it is? It's like ours versus theirs. One. Yeah, yeah, it, ours. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So, you know, it's funny is that in the book, she's, she's keeping saying, oh, he's, you know, watch out for him. He seems like trouble. And Bond doesn't like him and finds him a bit of a bore, like boorish meaning. Uh, but he, he, he falls for it. Well, and we don't know as we're reading yet whether or not it's Grant because we can't see him in the book. Right, right. So, and, and, and unlike the unlike the movie, Grant hasn't been popping up all through the story. We haven't seen Grant since the very, very beginning when, when we met him. So there's another layer of obfuscation going on that, that only you can do in a book, which is like I love that in adaptations when the person doing the adaptation is able to sort of say oh this works in the book so what can what can we find as a stand-in for this in the movie and we're and we're going to get to a stand-in for the other thing that bond is very suspicious of which is which is the full windsor knot (laughs) is wearing and bond thinks that um no good fellow really wears a full so we can't really do that in the movie so we're going to come up on something later that we're going to that we'll substitute for that yeah like all the scenes are there from the novel and a lot of the plot points and what happens, but the way that they happen or our understanding of them is just slightly shifted, just yeah. slightly adjusted. Uh, yeah, and I also noticed, and there's just two shots in this in this little sequence. There's the insert, and then there's this really low, wide-angle shot of Bond um, looking at the, at the case, which is an angle that's going to come back later on with the map business. And I think it's really interesting how we're being told how to look at that compartment. We don't know that it's going to be really important that we understand the geography of that compartment in a little bit, but it's really interesting how these very dynamic shots are being chosen to, to place us in that space. That's a great point about the geography. Uh, De Palma always talks about that. He says when building suspense, it's, you know, it's all about the ramp up. And he said that the, the only way that these scenes like the untouchables or carry work is that if he just shows you the geography, and so when you watch the Bahama film, it's, it's, all, it's all about the geography and understanding spatial relations uh, to, to, from you know, where everyone is. Yeah. Unless you have anything else on this little scene, we'll jump ahead to, to this train compartment, which is really interesting because, it's, again, it's another kind of low-wide shot giving us a sense of where everybody is, everybody being Grant sitting next to Tanya, who's sort of staring out the window. And eventually he'll get up and walk back just as he's about to get to the door James Bond appears and they come back and they take different positions at the table right they're now at the the cafe car they, they, they yeah they are the dining car yeah, yeah they've, cha- they've changed locations which uh, there's like in these seven minutes these are great seven minutes there's like six scenes in these seven minutes and it's uh, including you know including the, the, the suitcase but you it's not a rushed seven minutes it's just it's you know it's taking its time and so as you're saying we're in the cafe or dining car and then what it in, Grant gets fresh. We call him Grant or Nash, by the way. Yes, yeah, true. I guess. Well, what we, do you want to call I, him we know we know he's Grant. <laughs> we, the audience, know that this is Red Grant. So we call him Grant. OK, OK. So Grant, as you said, he gets, you know, he looks at his watch. He's a little impatient and he gets up and he starts to walk back towards the, the sleeping car. And what that little watch look at an impatient look indicates to us, the audience, that time has passed. And what do we suspect happened in that time is that Bond is doing a thorough search of everything. 
he, of, the, of the car, of the suitcase, you know, the sleeping compartment of, of yeah. the suitcase. He's, he's, he's thoroughly checking out Grant's belongings, which he had previously set up by saying, hey, you know, let's, you know, you leave your belongings here. We'll go and get something to eat. You know, so that's paying off, but it's being paying off off camera. We have to imagine it's happening. And we're worried just for a tiny yeah. minute that maybe Grant's going to continue on and, and bust Bond going through his stuff back in the room. Um, it doesn't happen. But I wanted to touch on on Tanya for a minute, who's sitting there next to him. And he's not sitting across from her. He's sitting next to her. That may be because of the blocking allows us to see both of their faces because he will then take a seat across from her, which is interesting. Um, but she just looks completely defeated. Like she is just like, what is going on with her? Because she has not recovered from the terrible interrogation that has happened with Bond. And, and yeah, she does. She her. does her, her, her behavior, her, you know, when it comes time to order the food, you know, what, what do you want? And she sort of, sort of shrugs her shoulders. It's the, you get the sense just by her behavior, not what she's saying, but by her body language that this whole thing is taking a toll on her. Yeah. And I wonder what she thinks is going to happen to her. Do you think she has any because we don't get any sense that she has any suspicions about Grant the way that she does in the book right. about Nash not liking him. So. She probably doesn't think she probably buys that this guy is a British agent and that she's just going to be left in the lurch. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think you're right. I think in the film, you know, she just gets a sense. Oh, I'm going to be pushed around. I'm going to go from one spy to the next and they're going to, you know, I'm, I'm now part of a, a cog in this giant machine that is now completely out of my control. Uh, but as you say in the book, she's she's very suspicious, and it's good that she's not completely suspicious because in the film we don't want to see some character knowing more than we don't want to see someone knowing more than Bond if they're going to say, "Hey, you should be suspicious of him," and then Bond rejects that. <laughs> right, that, right. That would make Bond look foolish. It's okay for another character to know more than Bond, but he's got to then take that information and not dismiss it. So this is this is a, a, what worked well in the novel uh, doesn't uh, needed to be changed for here. Any other reason why he would be sitting next to her? Rather I think than you're right. I think I think it her? saves. A, I think it saves a shot yeah. uh, because you know you you see the two of them sitting next together. He gets up and walks, and then he. I think it just saves one setup. Yeah, you get the information from one shot. So here we are. It's time to order some food. <laughs> Bond comes in, sits down. Um, we've got a low, pretty powerful single shot of Grant as as he starts to do his ordering. Uh, and so this whole thing is covered really economically. There's the one wide shot where Grant's kind of his back is sort of to us. And then there's a kind of profile shot where we're looking straight at the table and we can see the projection, the plate behind him, the the of the landscape passing by which terence young says that it's the same stuff they used for the daytime shots but he just put a filter on it he's actually very proud of himself more, more economy um but so here it is here's the here's the big order red wine uh i'll have the i'll have the bon says blanc de blanc and and uh he says i'll have the chianti white chianti sir no no the the red kind yeah. And Bond clocks it. You can see, like, Connery looks at it. It's, it's kind of, it's from that angle where we can see his face. 
so many things. Okay. Connery is so great in this film and in these scenes where, you know, when you're reading the novel, Fleming can take us through his thought process. And here we're reading Connery's, I don't even want to say suspicion, but as you say, he clocks it. Because later on it pays off. He says, I should have known. So it's, you don't, so what happens is Bond doesn't go, hmm, I figured it out. You just see this weird, you see this beat where Connor goes, hmm, weird. But it all happens in a flash. It's just so, so quick. I think Grant, as I was rewatching it, I was thinking he's got to be one of the best henchmen. Uh, and there, there, these, this scene and the, the scene that follows are two scenes that all Bond films have sort of been, in my opinion, chasing. Uh, the entire series. In this scene, it's Bond talking to a bad guy. And it's a legitimate reason for the two to be talking. You want, you, you need your hero and your villain to have conversations. You don't generally want them to meet just at the end. Uh, you know, for some bizarre reason, this like in Star Trek, you could have Khan come up on the intercom and you can have all these great scenes because... They're in different spaces, but there is an intimacy between those two performances and those two characters. And you don't, you don't go, oh, why doesn't one just blow the other one off the earth? As well, maybe they're far away, maybe one's on, you know. So you need an organic and legitimate reason for your bad guy and your good guy to be sitting talking to each other, because that's the excitement of, of, of these scenes. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how many other times has Bond been having a conversation with somebody who's tricking him, like who we know clearly is the bad guy and Bond doesn't. And I think that there's not many. Like even even with the double flips of Christatus and Columbo and For Your Eyes Only, we're on we're with Bond. We don't know we don't know which is the bad guy, which is the good guy. Yeah, and that's what that's one of the that's one of the things that makes Goldfinger so good is that it yeah. just skirt you know, the two of them are just talking. But it, this is just like it, it's so good because there's all that great tension and it's not Bond being tied up he just two, two, two guys across this, you know across the table from each other talking it, and it's so it's so gripping and Robert Shaw is so good in this he's so good and we haven't heard him speak yeah. except for you know a few moments before in the cabin so so you're getting used to it's a weird kind of getting to know you scene you know, it's like it's they're meet cute. You know, they're gonna have <laughs> they're gonna have dinner together. So it's it's yeah, it's super super interesting. And before we have any time to even realize that Bond kind of clocked that order, we get right to the business of of knocking glasses over and and ma- making a mess, which is covered in just two very classic kind of insert shots: one where the glass goes over and one where the tablet goes into the glass and otherwise we're back covering this conversation just like the normal dinner has been covered up to this point. And Grant does, just, just in terms of, of how he physically knocks the glass over and uh, slips the mickey, it's, it's well done. It's well choreographed. It's good. It, and him doing it and how when Connery's looking the wrong way, everyone's playing this well. And maybe having those two shots that we can alternate between of the three of them 
it kind of helps to sell the fact that, yeah, this maybe he can get away with this, even though we're seeing him do it in a great big old close up. It, it comes back to the next shot, which is like, no, I can't, I can't, can't see him doing it right there from that angle. The thing so, that I keep, I kept on going back and forth on is I, I do believe Bond sees his, he's, I think Bond, he turns away for part of it, but then when you see the close up of, of, of the, what are we calling it? I don't know. The pill? The pill. The, the Mickey? The Mickey. Slip or the Mickey. When, when, when you see it going, going in, that is, it's a, it's a close-up shot, and I'm wondering if it was intended to be a point-of-view shot or if that was just the best angle. Because some, part of it does, to me, look like it could be Bond's point-of-view shot. And then yeah. when, when you come back to the angle where you see Bond, his eyes are down... And you know, maybe it's just my TV. I couldn't quite tell if he was looking at it where his eye line was, whether it was he was looking at cutting his food or if he was looking at it. And I've sort of come down on the point of view where ultimately he did see it. What? But I, I think I, I, I think you're right, just because he's so quick to acknowledge later on. You know, what did you give her? Right. And I think that in some ways he probably is grateful for no matter who's doing it he's probably grateful that she becomes one less thing he's got to worry about in the situation right, because that's you want, going to unfold yeah no that's a good point because if he and let's assume that this is right because he also when when she calls when when we get to the scene after this one where he walks on the hallway and grant says oh she's she's you know she's unwell yeah. let's bring her inside uh, that Bond could have seen that behavior and figured it out. So that's a, yeah. so you could say, well, that's when he figured it out. But for the moment, let's say this is when he figured it out. You do wonder why. You do have to ask yourself, why did our hero knowingly let th- this person that he's there to protect get poisoned? Yeah, because we don't know whether he's knocked her out or he's right. Yeah, killed her. Yeah, yeah. So you know, maybe he recognized it, and you know. But that's yeah. you, you have to go. Oh, Bond, what are you, why are you doing that? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I, I yeah, I have thoughts about that corridor. Before we get there, I just think it's, it's we should just take a moment and acknowledge that Red Grant has to do a little, do a little extra work with a toast to try to get her to drink the damn stuff <laughs> yes. because she doesn't seem particularly interested no. in food or drink, right? No, so no. it's it's pretty interesting. That's that's like a variation of the old switched switched glass, bit, yeah, you know, yes, with yeah. which glass has the poison in it or whatever. <laughs> um, so he he does it with a really obnoxious chiro. So we'll give him we'll give him, he continues to be annoying, which is really good. <laughs> but yeah, when we get into that corridor, what I really noticed was that she goes she starts to faint. She drops her purse. Grant grabs her purse, grabs her. Bond has already gone into the compartment, and he doesn't go to help her. Like, hey, there's the girl I love. I need to, like, give her some help. He's just like, yeah, bring her in. Yeah, bring her in. And so you really speaks to a kind of, I mean, and then even the way he kind of puts her down on the seat is not as bad as him shoving her away after he's finished with the interrogation, but it's not real um Loving. No, no, not by a long shot. Uh, and Grant's role within this corridor is also slightly different from the novel. And the same, the, the same physical action takes place. She becomes sick, and they bring her in. That's all that the scene needs to accomplish. In the novel, 
Grant is more forceful, and Bond notices that that he's like you know he, he Grant is the one who's sort of moving her around in in a, in a unpleasant manner, uh, and in this he seems much more gentle in my reading of it compared to the novel. He's you know that he's he's doing a better job of play acting that he's there to help. In, yeah. in, in in the novel, he overplays that, and he's too forceful of Bond notices. In fact, when she drops her purse, he kind of drops out of frame for a minute, and you're almost like, what, what, what did he, what, what's he doing? Yeah, and yeah. then he comes up with the purse, and you're like, oh, wow, how very gallant of him. He's really <laughs> going to take care of her. So, yeah, it's interesting that he brings he he brings something kinder to the moment that we that's not what yeah, we expect yeah. from, from the villain. And we know, the audience, we know he's the villain. We know he's the bad guy. So... It's a quite a moment, and then once into that corridor, Bond makes it clear that he's he's up on what's going on because the first thing out of his mouth is, "What did you give her?" Yes, um, yeah, <laughs> right. He knows that he drugged her, so yeah, you're probably correct that he spotted it at the table. And yeah, when Bond turns around with a gun, uh, just in terms of Connery's physicality and his movement, it's really, really graceful and powerful. Uh, and you don't see him, I didn't see him, taking the gun out. All of a sudden, he turns around, and, and he's got the drop on, on, on Grant. He just spins yeah, and around. it's just an amazing hero shot. Yeah. Like, and, he's, and he's holding the gun the same way he, that the Bond, that the fake Bond holds that gun <laughs> in, uh, in the garden at the very beginning. You know, like, there's something about the way that Bond holds that gun in From Russia With Love that is different than, than he in any other of the Connery films. There's just, he's just coiled in a way that he's not like I'm he's really ready for action. Yeah, it's an coiled, amazing yeah. amazing shot, you know. And then Nash really sort of diffuses the the te- the the situation really wonderfully, you know, by saying, you know, what are you interested in, the girl or the lector? And it it's sort of an interesting Bond character moment because he's interested in the woman, I mean, he is like the fact that it, it, he, if he didn't have a, a port, obviously he's doing it for for duty, and he does want the lector because he knows that it's in, in, important for England. But he Nash pinpointed uh, a I don't want to say a fault in Bond, but a human emotion in Bond that he wanted to conceal. And this is the reason why agents shouldn't have, you know, personal relations with the people that they're, it makes them vulnerable. It makes them, yeah. you know, and so he found that pressure point and was able to talk his way out of this situation by calling Bond on his feelings, which he's trying to, which Bond is trying to suppress. Grant is way more um, nuanced, I think, in the, in the, in the movie than he is in the novel. I think he's way smarter, you know, he's just, he's way less of a thug and he really does. And it's Robert Shaw's performance is part of it too, that Shaw just brings that level of, of power and charm and, you know, just emotional sensitivity to it. That's that I think is really great. Have, have you ever seen Robin and Marion? Not for a while. I saw it like, you know, a hundred years ago. So, you know, he's, he's the, he's the sheriff yeah. of Nottingham in that. And the, the two of them, really play well together in that film as well. And it's a, this is very similar with the sheriff who has a, a fair amount of charm 
and power and then the way that he i mean those two guys they just they really work well yeah. together yeah so um from this great in, invulnerable hero shot of bond with the gun so once he puts the gun away and grant says he can show this better on a map and gets down on his knees right unfolds the map on this on the seat bond comes over to stand behind him so still bond is in power and then Bond kneels down next to Red Grant yeah. to look at the map. And this is and and we know where this goes. It's great. There's two insert shots, one where it's Grant's hand and we don't know what he's doing and then the second one reveals the gun before he cracks him over the head. But this is really James Bond letting his guard down. Yeah. Oops. Yeah, he he, he made a mistake. <laughs> and when Grant cocks him on the back of the head, that looked like real contact was made. I mean, that was I mean, it's 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 forceful and it's and it's sort of shocking and it look it, lo- it looks very very violent. Yeah, Bond let his guard down in in the novel. I think he gives his gun to Grant as well. I think so. And and well and and as as Grant searches through Bond's belongings, he pulls out the cigarette case. Right, right, right. And so for anybody who's read the novel. They know that the gun that Red Grant has hidden in his copy of War and Peace uh, <laughs> is going to be fired and is going to ricochet off of the cigarette case that Bond has in his jacket. So if you're smart and paying attention and had read the book, you go, oh, shit. He just the thing that saved Bond's life in the book, the cigarette case ain't going to save it now. because <laughs> Grant just took it and, and pocketed it. Yeah, I think that was a good change. Not doing the, the book. Oh, I think the, so, too. I think there are very few moments in these adaptations where Richard Maybaum's instincts as a screenwriter didn't improve upon stuff that Fleming could just kind of get away with. Because clearly Fleming was way more interested in everything else except some of these cockamamie uh, situations that... Bond would find himself put into, and Bond's constantly getting knocked out in the books, and he's, you know, he's not the best spy in the world, you know. And so, if I, I feel like that's probably Maybaum. Yeah, it's a, saying it, it wouldn't it be better yeah. if we did this. Yeah, I, I think, and that's why I also want to talk about the the next portion of this scene is Maybaum's improvement on it for the for the film. Uh, so he knocks out Connery. You want to do this next part? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go for it. Oh, oh, I was just going to say, he, he knocks out Connery, and then there's that... Connery is on his back with this really low-angle shot that uh, where you see the back of Connery's head, and the, the camera's as low as it, as it could possibly be. And it's more geography setting. It's really reminding you of what, it's, what, it, what's, what, the, what, the, what the confined compartment's like. Uh, but it also shows how big and powerful Nash is hovering over oh, yeah. Connery as, as he, as you're saying, as he goes through his pockets and takes out the money and in, in no time. What, the other thing I love about the way Nash behaves when he knocks out Connery, going back one second, is after he knocks out Connery, Nash takes a step back and gives himself another foot of space between him and Bond, 
And this is because in case he didn't knock out Bond, he wanted to be prepared to either, you know, to, 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 get, the, to get the better hand of him in some way. Uh, you know, whether yeah. it's a fight or, or shooting him or whatever. But it's, it's, it's real great behavior on, on Grant's part and Robert Shaw. But the, so, so, and the slap, and the slap too. Yeah. Like before he backs off, Connery kind of Bond is kind of coming too, and his hand kind of comes up, and he just smacks his <laughs> hand and knocks it back, and it's like, oh wow, he's like not fooling he around. Is not so fooling around. that distance, that killing distance that he puts killing between distance, yeah. him and Bond when he steps back, yeah, it's just again, it's like, you know, this guy's good. Yeah, he's, he's smart. Yeah, and then Bond is on his knees, and there's this. And this is what I love about this movie, and this scene with with Grant pointing a gun at Connery while a defensive Bond has to figure his way out of a problem is is an, is the other thing that all Bond films have been chasing since this film. It's 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 the one scene you need in in every Bond film: a helpless, defenseless Bond being trapped in something, having to use his wits to get out. You know, Goldfinger, do you expect me to talk? Goldfinger coming yeah, right to yeah, mind, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, 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 my favorite scene, I think, in Tomorrow Never Dies is the one where where the same thing happens, where Pierce Brosnan's Bond is on his knees and and the marksman from Stuttgart. Stuttgart oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, that's what this scene is. <laughs> All Bond films want this wonderful scene where Bond is completely defenseless and has to come come up with something that we the audience can't figure out to get out of it. It's it's just great. It's a nine times out of ten it's not the gadget. Yeah, 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 yeah. That shot, by the way, of the of Bond on his knees, hands in the pockets, frame right, frame left, the, you see the gun. It's really amazing because not only is it a vulnerable shot, but it's also still kind of a hero shot. He's got a gun on him and he's got his hands in his pockets and he's on his knees and yet just the way that it's composed, probably the camera is just a teeny bit lower than it probably needs to be just to make him look a little bit more powerful. And the frame left is totally dominated by Grant. And yet still, it's like a hero shot. It's so cool. Yeah, he's vulnerable, but looking great. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what it's all about. You know, and in terms of changes that Maybaum made, uh, and, and well, I'm talking about these changes, it's not meant in any way. This is a great Fleming novel. You know, oh yeah. 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 So it's it's not meant to be. You know, Maybaum's doing a better job than Fleming. It's what are the needs of a novel versus the needs of of this particular film when it was made at this particular time. Um, and in the novel, uh, Nash or Grant is is more. He's more cocky, so he's just willing to spill the beans. In the film, Maybaum has Bond do some sort of deductive work and reasoning to help figure out what's going on. Uh, he's still using... Bond, in, in both instances, the film and the novel, hopes to get out of this. So he hopes to be able to extract information that will pay off later. Um, you know, in particular with you know Rosa Klebb and what, what, what her role is. And that's helpful for Bond in the novel in um, later on in the hotel, I think. Um, so I, I think that these changes are, you know, are excellent for, for the film now. Yeah, I think that that mention of Kleb, that Bond 
recognizes who Rosa Klebb is, I think is really interesting. It's it's uh, it's the second time another character, because Tanya knows who Rosa Klebb is as well, and so so she must have quite a rep with uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, Smirsh. exactly. And nobody knows she's with Spectre now, but she's. But I love that that Bond is, you know, he's he is adding a lot to this mix when he's in a really bad situation, and it makes it keeps him strong, you know. And then you see Grant putting his he, the way Grant. Put, affixes the silencer of his gun yeah. is also just shows you how powerful and good at his job he is. You know, he's got the gun on his on his foot while while screwing the silencer in, and there's just something about it where it's like this man has done this before. Uh, you're he is not any weaker because he's doing another task. In addition to keeping Bond in his place, he's also becoming more and more elite. He's becoming more and more of a threat. The, the, yeah, you're right. He gets escalated. stronger and stronger. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we becomes we we're racking our brains trying to figure out how Bond's going to get himself out of this, and it's it's hard for us to figure out what he could possibly do to stop this guy. And then you got that that great line, you know, Red, White, and Fisher should have known that that is Maybaum's Bond. You know, Maybaum. Always knew Maybaum's Bond and Fleming's Bonds are just two different bonds. Sometimes they do the same things as as, as is often the case in this film. Uh, but even when they're doing the same things, they're doing them slightly differently. They're two. Di- I I think they're really just two different characters. And I, yeah, I, for the longest time, I thought that they were all one. You know, when I was for my first book, Many Lives of James Bond. It, I I came to the interviews with probably a false premise, which was so that book is interviews with writers, producers, directors, novelists, comic book writers of how do you take Ian Fleming's Bond and interpret him so that it's true to Ian Fleming's Bond. And even when people are trying to be true to Ian Fleming's Bond, they change him. They they might not have meant to. In some instances, they they did intend to change him, uh, but he's always changed. And I really think that it's a mistake to consider all of these bonds Fleming's bonds. They're people's interpretation of Fleming's bonds. So it's like it's like a photocopy where it's it's not it's not a pristine it it. it when I say it, well, I want to say it loses something, not inferior or, or better or worse, but it's it's not the same. Well, and they have to be subservient to genre. Yeah. So if it's a comic book, that's the genre. If it's a video game, it's the genre. If it's a movie, that's the. I mean, James Bond is its own genre in film, and so film, you know, genre trumps everything. Yeah. It seems like, and so like we talk about that, we talk about that um, Windsor not business in. Fleming's novel where it's very much the same idea of oh he did this thing that I see as kind of not in line with how I think a man should behave and I should remember it because it says something about who this guy is and so it seems to me that Maybaum sort of takes that and substitutes another it sort of does the same function but he substitutes his his version of Bond and how his version of Bond would pay attention to and it would not be about the Windsor or not it would be about 
Red wine with fish. <laughs> you know, I think it, but it does this kind of the same thing. And so I think that's what's so, but we, you don't get a laugh out of it in the novel, but there's something really witty and funny about, about this, about only James Bond right. and only the movie James Bond would say this. Right. And at that moment, because it's a lot of times Bond will make the, the quip after the kill. And that became, that became overkill to pardon me. Yeah. Uh, and here he's making this in command joke when he's not in command. He's on his knees and is going to be killed. Uh, but he's still, he, he's still in command of the situation or, or, or is fighting to be. And I, and I think that, yeah. I think that, that joke and his calling Grant on saying old man, which infuriates him in the, uh, is his attempt to keep on clawing his way out of this. In, in, in the book, he, he practices making movement. While, while he's in this vulnerable position, he keeps on testing how much movement can he make with his arms and his body to make Grant comfortable with the idea that he's not completely standing still. So in, in all instances, he's, he's trying to get the better hand even though you can't for the life of you figure out how he's going to do it. Yeah. In the novel, that's, he does that. There's that whole internal conversation about what can I do to not set him off. I also think about the scene Casino Royale with the, you know, I've got a, I've got a little itch down there, (laughs) you know, where it's still like, it's, 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 you know, I love this idea of, um, they've been chasing this. Like, I think that's really interesting, Mark, how like, yeah, you start thinking about these things that, they nail it in one movie and they're like, okay, how do we, how do we do another version of the same thing in another story, in another movie with another bond? And there are so many things in the first, in Dr. No and from Russia with love that, that really resonate. And they're like, Oh, how do we do that again? Even, even the, the incredible sense of, of defeat and betrayal that bond feels after his interrogation of Tanya um, there's a moment in No Time to Die where, where Bond is just absolutely furious about feeling betrayed, and it's in a terrible situation, and it's almost like you know he just may have lost everything because he cares about this this person. Yeah, that's why I love this film, and I love Maybaum's contrib- contribution to this film. The other thing I should say, though, although I've been talking about Maybaum a lot, just because. I think he said, you know, Bruce Fierstein, who wrote, who co-wrote three, who was a writer on three Bond films, yeah. uh, you know, said when you do a Mount Rushmore, you got to put Maybaum on, on, on Mount, Mount Rushmore Bond films, you got to put Maybaum on it. Yeah. Uh, is that these, all these Bond films from Dr. No to No Time to Die are not the voice of a single creator. They're not the voice of a single writer. Uh, it's not a writer goes off and writes the Bond script and hands it into the director and the producers, and then, then they take it from there. Maybaum, in his essays, talks about the Bond writing method, where they have st- story meetings where everybody attends. You know. The director, the producers, 
know, but he would also talk about the production designer and, you know, contributing, mm -hmm. you know, it's, or, you know, in The Spy Who Loved Me, where you start with the idea of what the stunt is, guy going off a cliff, and then you have to work, and I know that Mavon didn't write this, but it, I'm using it as indic indicative of the Bond writing approach, uh, where you have the stunt with Bond jumping off the cliff on his skis, and then you have to you have to reverse engineer everything else to come up with a scenario in which Bond has to jump off a cliff with his skis. Right. You know, you almost work backwards. Well, you know, you know, everybody is pitching in, and everyone is pitching ideas. So when you look at a script or a movie or the finished product or even the credits, the credits don't reveal all about all the different contributors and to, to what they do. And we do know that it was Berkeley Mather who came up with the idea of weaving Red Grant all through the structure of this movie. So, you know, that's that's arguably the biggest, best idea of translating from the novel to the the additional thing that's added to this is that double blind with Spectre and Red Grant and everybody being even further ahead of Bond than than, than in the original because it's just Smirsh. So that's attributed to a different writer. Yeah, I, I, I think that, I think that's a huge uh, addition. I don't want to say improvement. I think that's a huge addition to to the film medium. Is is having that? I mean, it does make adds more complications. You know when. Uh, with the for Marshall with love, the, oh, with the novel, this is the climax. You know, the film. Uh, there's going to be a big boat. Yeah, <laughs> a big boat. Boats and helicopters. It's all coming. And we got later. a lot of stuff. But we got a lot of stuff. That you don't. In terms of story, you don't need that. In the novel, it, it, there's not that. Right. It, it, it yeah. essentially goes from the train to the end. Uh, basically, if I'm remembering. You're right. Um, to, and to me, as a viewer, this is the highlight of the film for me. These tra this, this train sequence, not just the fight, uh, but just all these talking, all these dialogue scenes. This is sort of yeah. the emotional highlight of the film for me. Uh, and, and is much more exciting and compelling than, um, than the boat stuff, even though it's well done. But this is where, this, the, this is the heart of the movie for me. And then the finale with Rosa Club is that's in the book, and that's really great, right? So that so you could almost pull that stuff out at the boats and the helicopters out, and and it it wouldn't hurt the film. I mean, it wouldn't hurt the story, right? It, right. You know, it keeps the film charging ahead and production value and all that other stuff. But you know, I totally I totally agree. I also think that this idea of all of these different voices and all of these different ideas finding their way um, into other movies is re is really interesting because in a way like they cherry pick from Fleming They're to the point now where I was shocked to find that there was yet one more thing that nobody had used from Fleming that finds its way into the latest. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, good, good for them. I mean, that's, that's terrific. And so why wouldn't we expect a long list of things that come up when story conferences that go from movie to movie? Cause I know that I think I remember Dan Petrie telling me that he had done some work on tomorrow never dies uncredited writing and that the character that um would show up in the world is not enough who's impervious to pain you know that uh, the yeah. that um robert carlisle yeah. plays i guess that was supposed to be an attribute of stamper in 
in Tomorrow Never Dies that was ultimately removed. And then they just put a pin in it and they find a home for it in the next movie. So that's, I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, in some of these unmade Dalton, there's also this idea that the villain's impotent. Uh, you see that pop up here and there. And yeah. so, yeah, sometimes in multiple different story iterations. Uh, and sometimes you just have an idea and you're like, ah, you keep on trying to fit it in. And, and ultimately you do. Um, but yeah, you sometimes just got these ideas. You're like, I really want to do this. I've always wanted to get Bond to do X. And sometimes you just keep on trying until you finally find, find, a, find a way. Yeah, it's great. With one creative uh, entity behind these movies, they're able to do that. Like, I, you know, I'm sure that they own everything that every writer walks in the room to contribute, you know, and they're paid well for that for that brainstorming session. But I think you write about one of those the, I think it was for the one where Nicholas Meyer and a bunch of people were, were all called in for a big brainstorming session. And you can bet every single thing that came out of anybody's mouth is the property of Eon Productions. Yeah, that was interesting because they, you know, people talk about, oh, are, are they stuck in their ways? You know, they they had a, a big writer's room. Uh, and I don't think they are stuck in their ways. I don't think you can make a film series that lasts 60 years or nearly 60 years uh, if you're stuck in your ways. You know, as you've seen in the Daniel Craig films, uh, there, these Daniel Craig stories would have been unheard of prior to today. They could have, they, they, that's, it's unimaginable. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing I was thinking about, so, so, so in terms of the writer's room, they said, we're going to try something different at the suggestion of the director, uh, Roger Spottiswood. We're going to bring all these writers together and they're all Bond fans and they're going to come up with ideas and let's see if, let's see if there's anything that, 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 that comes from it. But the other thing, you know, I was thinking about these, you know, we keep on saying that we, the, all the previous Bond films were standalone. And that's true to a large extent, but not completely. You know, this Bond film had a lot of references to the previous one. You know, they, they've yeah. only made, this is only the second Bond film. Um, but there's still a, a n- number of, not just reoccurring re- characters, but references to previous events of the of the other one. So it's not, it, to say it's standalone is not completely true. And all these first four maybe connect in terms of what Spectre is up to um, and a few other random, th- random thoughts. Um, where did I go with this? Um, oh, artifacts. So, so this is the second Bond film from I Should Love, but the fifth Bond novel. So you hear Grant talking about the great James Bond in in this film. In the, in the fifth novel, that makes sense. You know, we, the, we, the readers have listened, you know, this is our fifth Bond book. He is the great James Bond in the second film. Is he, you know, (laughs) I I don't know. He is. Um, And I feel like that's an artifact from the novels that that works, but is an artifact that was designed that that serves one purpose in the novels and in a different way serves a different purpose here where it's it's not it's where it's suggesting he is great by by it. Whereas the other ones were, were like, yeah, he is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me see if it's, I have some other random thoughts if we're at the random thought section of this Podcast. We are <laughs> well. You've 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 sensed that done done well in sensing that. Um, 
M's relationship to Bond is different than it will become. Bernard, you know, when you think when I think of Bernard Lee, I always think of the combative relationship that he and Roger Moore had, you know, frustrated housewives, you know, tailors yeah. and, and the like. But yeah. when when Connery and when Bond and M are just talking, the, the, their relationship is like the novels. It's not mm-hmm. it's not a fraught I'm fr- I'm frustrated with Bond all the time. Um, it's 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 a respectful one. Uh, you you see Bond's respect for M. I think in those. Um, yeah, and he starts hating him a little bit more in Goldfinger, <laughs> and he hates him a little bit more in Thunderball, and he hates him even more. And it just keeps going to where they. You're, I think you're right. I mean, it's just like they, they seem to despise each other by the end of Roger Moore's run. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and um, what, what, what else? Um, oh, in the novel, uh, Maybaum, not Maybaum, Fleming writes that they sat in silence, silence at that dinner scene. That's not going to work for a film, you know. So no. that's a, that's a, it's another useful change. Um, the recognition code, which is used like three times in in From Us With Love, at the last time it's used, you don't even see them play it out. You don't hear. Excuse me. You see them say yeah, it, yeah. but you don't hear it. You hear you you hear the train and the steam covers it up, and that reminded me a little bit of um, Hitchcock's um, North by Northwest, where uh-huh. there's a you know explainer scene, and you don't the audience knows what's being explained. So Hitchcock said, "Oh, you don't need to hear it. Let's just have noises," and that became a joke. Um, no, I think that's my all my random thoughts. Those are good random thoughts. I appreciate <laughs> you bringing them, <laughs> and I really appreciate you taking the time to to come on the show and talk about these minutes i'm glad you got to choose the minutes you want oh i know this is such a great these are great seven minutes these are you know these are seven perfect bond minutes i really think yeah you know i think i think uh it's it's a special film but i really think that these are a special seven minutes of bond and i was so overjoyed to have an opportunity to talk about these these wonderful seven minutes. Are you working on anything uh, new these days? Are you back in Bond world? Are you going uh, in a different direction? I'm happy to say that my the Many Lives of James Bond just came out in paperback, so that's good. Um, uh, and then I'm working on some other books, uh, but one one of them is non Bond related, and one of them is Bond related. And then I don't know. That's plenty. Well, I hope you out. have continued success with all endeavors because you're a really good writer and you're an amazing detective. <laughs> the, the, the angles that you have found and the people that you have found have just been really, it's just delightful. Yeah, th- th- thank you. You know, that really comes out of the feeling that so many other people have covered Bond in other areas and that the only way I can contribute is to look under rocks that are not as often pulled over. Yeah, excellent. Thanks to the audience for joining us. Thanks to Mark for being here. And uh, we will see you next time for more 007 by 7. Thank you.